0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Ever since Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King, non-violent resistance has held a special place in the public imagination. What can be better, after all, than forcing political change without the violence that so often accompanies it? But that the Gandhi and King stories are so powerful can perhaps crowd out other aspects of nonviolent resistance, many of which have been explored by Julie Norman of University College London. So welcome to you.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And can we just sort of, uh, you know, as we often do, define our terms at the beginning? Uh, what is the range of nonviolent activity? Where does it begin and where does it end?
1: It's such an important question, Owen, because I think different people understand nonviolence in different ways. For some, it's very pacifist, uh, no use of force whatsoever. Uh, It can be very principled, almost a philosophy. And for others, it's more of a strategy. It's uh, trying to use nonviolence to meet a certain end. That means it may not be um, what someone would consider purely nonviolent. Um, It may get into the gray area of, say, um, perhaps using, uh, you know, in some cases, handmade uh, tools, some would say even things like throwing rocks, things like that are or, or in a middle gray area. So many would even stretch nonviolence to include what's sometimes called unarmed resistance, this idea of um, perhaps fighting back or using some kind of force, but without, you know, a military force or or guns or these kinds of things. So I would say that's one thing I would just underscore in general is that this term means different things to different people and to different activists. And in one way, I think that's one reason why it's often difficult to mobilize for nonviolence, because even people within a quote unquote, same movement may have different, very different ideas of what that encompasses.
0: Yeah. So at one end, you've got, you're saying possibly you could include throwing rocks. Or I think many people would think that was a violent act. But I, I take your point that some people might say, you know, so, so far short of armed resistance that it, it doesn't count. But at, at, at the other end of it, it could be, you know, someone in their own mind disagreeing with the government and just sort of having a personal disagreement with them and sticking to their position in their own head.
1: Absolutely. And that, I think, is kind of the everyday nonviolence or everyday activism that we see in many different contexts. And in some of the places where I've worked, including in the Middle East, uh, in different parts of Central Africa, um, often these are places where not everyone can be joining a protest, or you're taking part in a strike, or these kinds of things we often think about with nonviolence, but they are doing things like, as you said, uh, disagreeing with the state, perhaps staying on land that the state would rather they be pushed off of. Maybe it's supporting their community in a way that the community can still exist uh, and survive or even thrive, um, despite conditions that are made to try and push them uh, the other direction. So I do think there's a lot of this everyday resistance that is Happening somewhat uh, covertly, if you will, uh, under the surface of sometimes more headline uh, kind of grabbing activism and nonviolence.
0: So there's another way of looking at this, which you perhaps could just run us through, which is acts of commission and acts of omission.
1: That's exactly right, and these are terms that have been used uh, in nonviolent um, movements as well as come up in nonviolent literature since uh, you know, for decades now. And so, an act of commission is when you actually are doing something, so you are taking to the streets and engaging in a protest, you are banging pots and pans, you are doing a sit-in, you're occupying a space, these are all things that activists are are taking action to, to do. An act of omission, uh, in contrast, is something when it's an act of refusal, when you refuse to go along with the state. It can be something like refusing to pay taxes or refusing to obey certain ordinances, um, refusing to comply with some kind of expectation that the state is putting on you or your community, your people. Um, And so most nonviolent movements that we see have some combination of these two things. And, uh, you know, some uh, are more available to some activists than others, and some are more strategic in some movements than others. Now, before we get on to
0: the effectiveness of nonviolence, which is one of the you know, key, key questions about it, I'd just like to ask you to sort of explain uh, your one of your themes is the NGOization of nonviolence. What's your idea? And Why do you think that that can undermine the whole message of nonviolence?
1: Yeah, so this was a concept that um, came up for me when I was working on a project in Israel, Palestine and looking at Palestinian nonviolence in particular. And this was in the period after um, the so-called Oslo Accords in the 1990s, when there was a lot of infusion of aid money of NGOs uh, coming into the Middle East and trying to do piecework quite quite broadly and i found in that research is that there was almost a um an intent uh, almost an attempt to like um incorporate nonviolence into uh into a lot of projects into programs into things that had funding behind them and a lot of these were very well intentioned and i i don't want to suggest that they were um somehow out to exploit people or something like that but what they did have the unfortunate effect of doing was moving nonviolence from a space of community-based activism to something that was much more uh, first middle class, something that was much more organized, if you will, um, in a uh, a way that was not always disruptive. And quite importantly, in the Palestinian case, uh, it resulted in nonviolent activism being conflated with more this idea of, of peace building, which is something that I think a lot of us can get behind as well in various contexts, but it's different than resistance. It's different than activism. So if you're in a context when you're trying to mobilize people who identify as activists, who feel the need to resist against um, you know, a state or a force of oppression or whatnot, uh, if that starts getting conflated with making peace with the enemy, with that kind of thing, um, that has a negative effect on mobilization. And that's one thing that I at least argued, uh, we saw happening in Palestine in those uh, years of the early 2000s. But Surely there's another aspect
0: to that. I mean, it doesn't have to be exploitative. The point might be that uh, Western governments see nonviolence as ineffective and are therefore very happy to support it.
1: Uh, Well, that's right. And that is one, uh, I think, thing that activists are very aware of. Uh, There was one activist who used the term of um, like domestication, where almost uh, the idea that a lot of Western governments seem to support nonviolence because it, it domesticates or kind of uh, subdues uh, these uprisings um, in places around the world where it's maybe uncomfortable to to have things being to have the status quo being upset. And what many activists say is, you know, why uh, why are they telling us to be nonviolent and not telling, you know, this uh, you know in this in this case, what people saw is the. Um, the Israeli state? Uh, why aren't they telling them to be nonviolent? And we, we see that uh, same dynamic reflected in other places as well with, with activists saying, OK, we're getting the nonviolent message, but why, uh, why isn't there pressure on um, our, you know, our opponent or the other person that's dynamic to be nonviolent back to us? Uh, and that's really where the source of the violence is from any activist perspective. Can you give another example of that? Even in some of the protests that we've seen around police brutality and uh, these kinds of things, there's a sense that activists are sometimes perceived as being violent when many activists feel that uh, they are pushing back to violence that has been imposed on them. Um, in recent contexts here, you know, I can even say other places that I've done this research, like uh, Northern Ireland, like South Africa, there has been that kind of historical dynamic going on there as well when when movements are often uh, encouraged to be nonviolent or are portrayed as you know in, in a certain kind of class of of even of terrorism uh, when they feel that the state against them is uh, just as guilty of uh, certain kinds of violence and crimes
0: now all this gets to the heart of this uh, crucial issue is of, of whether or not nonviolence works. And and I let's just start with the point that you know, there have been these very, very successful, famous, uh, triumphant uh, campaigns against massive injustice, uh, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and it's worked. And that has provided an inspiration for millions of others.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I would say there's different ways to, of course, measure success. And I would say on the The most straightforward way to answer this question, I would refer any listeners to uh, Maria Stefan and Erica Chenoweth's very interesting work um, from about over ten years ago now, looking at directly at this question of does nonviolence work? And essentially, what they found is even though nonviolence does not always work, it does usually work better than a violent uprising. So the question is not to compare nonviolence success rate, is it like close to 100% or not, but more compared to other kinds of activism and resistance do we see, does nonviolence work better than those? And they argue and find from looking at data uh, from kind of across the last uh, several decades, that indeed it does first in terms of uh, achieving initial change, but then also being able to sustain that change, that uh, you know, there's more likelihood that um, you know a, a, a different kinds of policies or a new government will stay in place longer uh, if they came about by nonviolent means. So there is data that supports that. I would say in many of the contexts that I have worked with, places like Israel, Palestine again, you often see conflicts that have a mix of both nonviolence and violence going on at the same time, so it's sometimes hard to. Measure when nonviolence is purely like working or not, because it's often uh, in just in contexts that are very murky and you can't isolate it directly. Um, what we often do or what I did in my work was try and look more at the local level. Did local level campaigns of nonviolence work in changing something uh, you know at the community or the village level, so for example, in Israel-Palestine, you know, nonviolence has not worked to, you know, create a Palestinian state or to remove the Israeli occupation and these kinds of things. But it was successful in some villages in, say, uh, changing the route of the separation barrier when it was being built or, you know, winning back some land for certain villagers that had been taken for settlements or, um, you know, being able to, to create a different kind of dynamic um, between between settlers and farmers. So, so we do see small scale stories of success, even in these stories that perhaps on the more large level seem like failures or not, not victories. So I think it's important to look at uh, at those kinds of levels. And, and the last thing I'll say in that too, is there is, even though it sounds perhaps a little cheesy, I do think there's something to be said for a sense of dignity and agency for people who are in situations of repression or oppression to feel like you are not just taking it sitting down, that you are pushing back, that your community has resisted, um, that you did not, um, you know, just go along with things when they were changing and kind of when, when you had a choice to stand up to power or not, did you do it? And I, and I do think that Matters in communities and in individuals uh, to to have that sense of, um, of agency in their lives and not just to be pawns or recipients of what a state actor might be doing
0: yeah well i, I mean I, I, I can see that point but at the same time that means that all nonviolent resistance is successful doesn't it because if you if, if you if you do take a stand uh, and you declare taking a stand as a success, then you know that obviously qualifies but uh, it, I, I mean had a thought on the bigger picture. I'm surprised by what you said. It obviously depends how you define success. But on these big campaigns, South Sudan, East Timor, you know, those were violent campaigns which worked and you can't see them having done that through nonviolent resistance.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I would say that obviously there's just as there's examples of when nonviolence has worked, there's examples of when violence has worked to some degree as well. Though, again, you know, I think we can look at something like You know, you gave the example of of Sudan and South Sudan. Yes, there was violence there, but also I would say the more recent experience of nonviolence in Sudan that finally deposed a a longstanding president there. Like that was that was an episode of nonviolence, again, coming out of a context of violence that was that proved to be successful and arguably, you know, Involved a lot more, um, it was able to garner a lot more popular support behind it than the violent campaigns that had come before. Yeah, I would just say also, you know, a lot of the violent campaigns that we see that are, are quote unquote su- successful, um, again, they are often not long lasting. There may be an initial change of um, you know, of head of state, of power, but things often uh, roll back fairly quickly, where again, nonviolent movements in general tend to have a bit more staying power um, if they're able to achieve their aims.
0: I mean, I, I, of course, there'll be lots of examples which say different things, but it'd be interesting to get you to reflect anyway on the situation in Iran today where nonviolent resistance has failed. And there must be people in Iran who wonder whether violent resistance would be more successful?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, obviously, uh, I think, I don't think they are over yet. Um, but I think we have seen that even a very widespread, very sustained protest movement still has its limits. You know, the, These aren't um, just going to be the easy falls, especially to a regime like Iran. And, and we've seen this, in other episodes of nonviolence in Iran over you know, the past uh, you know, 10 to 15 years as well, these mass outpourings of, of public protest in, in different kinds of ways. I will say that, yes, I don't, uh, I, I was one who when the protest started was somewhat cautious about being too optimistic because regimes like that in Iran tend to hold on pretty fiercely and at best will maybe give some small concessions to try and diffuse a nonviolent movement. So, you know, we saw the Ayatollah, for example, like pardon uh, a number of prisoners uh, several weeks ago and and some small measures like that or perhaps changing some of the regulations around the headscarf. But to actually give up power, it's very difficult. Again, I would argue that I'm not sure a violent uprising would be successful either in Iran right now. And one can say that even if it was, would it create, you know, another kind of uh, open-ended vacuum afterwards, which which would not be sure of what it would be filled with. I mean, we can look to 79, which I would say started also as a largely a nonviolent movement, became violent, um, but then resulted in the republic that we see today. So did not have, you know, did not have the, the outcome that many activists thought that it would.
0: I mean, I wonder, it may be just worth asking, are, are you... Generally, is it you know, your personal moral framework that you think nonviolent resistance is better than violent resistance?
1: It's a great question. I would say um, for me it's uh, kind of to, to paraphrase Churchill, I suppose it's the best uh, the worst form of resistance except for all the others. i I would say it's I very much recognize its faults. My first book on nonviolent resistance in Palestine was very much taking a critical approach to looking at why nonviolence was not working there. So, I'm not rosy eyed about it as being something that always works or that all individuals or all movements everywhere should always be um be rallying around. I will say for my personal form of activism, it's where I orient myself and the uh the movements that have been most impactful on my life, from the civil rights movement in the U.S. most particular, you know, it, it's where I see activism as being probably the most uh, effective in examples that I've seen. But with that said, I recognize its limits and recognize that it's not going to work everywhere and in every context.
0: But could you go further than that and say that while, you know, you've made the point that there can be dignity in nonviolent resistance, there could be dignity in violent resistance, too,
1: There's in, certain, yeah. in terms
0: of honor and Sacrifice.
1: Oh, absolutely. And uh, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways to think about the ethics and morals of violence of warfare. I mean, I I guess I'm one that probably roots myself in more like kind of the just war theory and applies that to the individual level too. Is this something that is being done as a last resort as self-defense uh, in these kinds of principles of thinking about it? And in those ways, for me personally, um, violence you know, can be, and, and honestly, my life has been justified in several moments. And uh, and that's just a reality of the world that we live in. And certainly in, in many political campaigns, that becomes a reality as well. Where I look more is, again, what is most pragmatic, what is going to work the most. And where I guess I'm, I lean more on the side of nonviolence in this regard, or at least this unarmed resistance concept is, Really, this idea of mobilization of getting other people to participate in a movement, an activist in Palestine actually kind of spoke about this to me quite in, in a way that was was quite memorable to me. You know, he he had been involved in armed resistance in the past, and he kind of drew a dot in the middle of a piece of paper and said, "This is kind of the amount of people who can participate in armed resistance with you know guns and actual uh, kind of material and this kinds of things." And he drew like a slightly smaller circle around that and said, these are the people who can uh, participate in in light violent resistance, like throwing stones and Molotovs, these kinds of things. And then he kind of drew a circle around the whole piece of paper and said, and these are the people who can be involved in unarmed resistance and doing whatever they can to be part of this movement and be part of this current pushing for change. He said, that's where, that's why he moved from, this armed dot to uh, more this unarmed big circle, because that's how you can actually get uh, a movement and, and mobilize the, a, full, a full population. And I would say I found that overall convincing and I found replicated in the places that I work, where even when they're strong armed movements, they're quite limited and leave out much of the population who is often just kind of dragged along.
0: Yeah, I was wondering about that. That's very interesting. So you're basically saying it's, it's you know, it's easier to persuade people to, join a non-violent movement and you can get broader support but I, I guess the other side of that is i don't know what you think about this is the role of the individual and as an individual probably you can achieve more with violence than non-violence so you can imagine you know an individual with a with a weapon i don't know assassinating a repressive leader or or making some you know dramatic individual act that really changes changes the dial whereas an individual non-violent Activists is is, is not going to be able to do that.
1: In terms of impacts, that can be true. Again, I would say I'm not sure, like, how many everyday people, though, would have access to arms in that way, would have the know-how to carry out an actual effective armed operation, whereas, as we were talking about in the beginning, almost everyone can find some way to engage in an unarmed movement, whether that's, you know, whether that's protesting, whether that's striking, whether that's kind of everyday resistance stuff, whether that's setting up kind of parallel institutions and support frames and communities. There's just a lot more options available to people who usually don't have access to arms.
0: Now, just reflecting on your you know, overall view that nonviolence is probably more successful than most people think. Do you think that would be fair that that's what you believe?
1: Yes, I would say that it's. I, I would say yes.
0: Yeah, uh, and and one of the things you have written about where you know where I can see why you've got to that view is prisons. Yeah, where there's you know quite a bit of can be quite a bit of non-violent resistance to the prison authorities, and it and it can be quite effective. Can you can you talk us through what goes on in 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 non-violence in prisons?
1: Sure. This was uh, a research project that came out of my initial work in uh, in Israel Palestine, looking at activism more broadly, and when I would ask a lot of activists why or how they moved from armed resistance to nonviolent resistance or why they were involved in unarmed movements. Many referenced their time in prison as being uh, instructive in that. And I don't want to imply that everyone who is a prisoner or a political prisoner comes out with that kind of outcome. Um, Many are, are in fact, go the opposite direction. But many who I spoke with uh, had found the experience in prison as actually informing uh, a future in nonviolent resistance. And that was for a couple reasons. One, I would say this is pretty particular to political prison context. So I was looking mostly at Palestine, but also looking at Northern Ireland and also looking at South Africa. Um, and these were contexts where prisoners were usually very intentional to organize against the prison regime. And they obviously did not have access there to guns or bombs or weapons. And so had to be creative, if you will, with their activism to change conditions, to push for different kinds of, um, you know, rules or or, uh, or or options within the prison. And so they did this in different ways. I think the most famous headline grabbing tactic that prisoners use is the hunger strike. And so that's obviously something that, in the UK and Northern Ireland context, is well known. From the early 1980s, there have been dozens of hunger strikes in Palestinian prisons. The tactic was used sometimes in South Africa, not not quite as much as these as these others. And that is probably, I would say, the the essence of a nonviolent kind of tactic. When not only are you not using violence against the enemy, but you're actually causing harm to yourself to try and push for a concession. So so the hunger strike is one, but I would emphasize that that is usually a kind of last resort for prisoners who do all different kinds of everyday resistance to simply make the, organi- the very organized life of a prison just unworkable for the guards and for the prison authorities. So it can be you refusing to stand up to be counted. It can be refusing to uh, obey different kinds of rules and orders. It can be uh, going on work strikes in the prisons. It can be, again, often some, I would say unarmed physical pushback as well, though that's that's not quite as much what I was focusing on. Uh, but these there were all different kinds of, again actions that prisoners historically in these kind of long term protracted conflicts, would organize around to try and push for concessions. And at least in the Palestinian case, and I would argue in some of the others, were effective in getting what may seem, again, not like conflict-changing concessions. And usually weren't even pushing for release, I would say, as well. It might have been pushing for three blankets instead of one, or to have... kettles in the, the prison cells, rather, like like uh, for, for making tea and this kind of thing, or being able to have access to books and writing materials. So these were the kinds of things that people would be often engaging in these strikes to achieve, and were, were often quite successful in that.
0: Funnily enough, I've just been writing a bit about those hunger strikes in Northern Ireland, so I might just ask you a bit about that. I mean, first of all, yeah, and, and we should say that Bobby Sands, the first of those hunger strikers died, and then others died after him from starving themselves to death.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was a massive uh, issue in UK politics. It was an incredibly effective campaign in some ways. But uh, well, let's first of all deal with the uh, question, was it violent? I mean, it was violent against their own bodies. And many of, their, of the Catholic faith who are watching it didn't like it, uh, mm-hmm. even though they were aligned with the, you know, in very broad terms, the Catholic community. So w- what do you make of that? It is a sort of violence, isn't it? Yeah.
1: It's one way to look at it, and I would say um, for anyone who has, you know, ever known someone who's been on a hunger strike or has been involved in a kind of solidarity campaign, uh, you see just the dire toll that it takes on the body, even for those who do not extend it to the point. Of death, it often results in uh, severe organ failure and blindness, and you know, kind of long term conditions that don't necessarily just go away when the strike is finished. So it is very hard for family members to often absorb that, as we saw in Northern Ireland. And I would say in Northern Ireland it was very, you know, as people here may remember, it was very controversial at that time with whether this was the right tactic, and you had as you know, to family members, um, you know, faith members trying to intervene to say, you know, call this off. And the Northern Ireland one is really interesting because in contrast to the Palestinian ones, it was not as immediately successful in achieving its originally stated aims with uh, trying to, you know, kind of get a prisoner war kind of status and some of the um, different concessions that went along with that. But it it had the more long-term effect of changing some of the public opinion of having Bobby Sands elected, even while he was, you know, on hunger strike, these kinds of things, and just galvanised that movement in a different kind of way, almost unintentionally, I would say, from what the hunger strike was initially set out to do, which was much more internal prison uh, kind of changes.
0: Yes, we're getting slightly into the weeds, but another interesting aspect of that is that another unintended consequence probably was that the IRA leadership, even that early, had realised they were never going to win the conflict and needed to settle but had to, had to delay doing that because the huge support they got as a result of the hunger strike. So it, in fact, you could argue, prolonged the conflict.
1: Yeah. And I think your point just there is interesting, too, that often when prisoners are engaging in these kinds of tactics, whether it was IRA or PLO in Palestine, there's often a perception that they are being you know, directed to do so by the party outside. And what I found was more of the opposite, that prisoners were sometimes often going against what the outside party wanted, the narrative that they were trying to paint and kind of taking back the struggle for themselves within the prison with what they felt were their most immediate needs there. And so, so that's something that was very true in the Northern Ireland context and elsewhere also. Can you talk to us
0: about creative protests? I mean, we've got hunger strikes and we've got, you know, like in Iran, people basically going out onto the street and making their views known. But there are also a lot of people Making creative protests, theatre, media, art. How much of that is there? How effective is that? Could you, could you give me the most effective example of that?
1: Yeah. So this is a great. Uh, I think a really interesting area of nonviolence. It's one that's a bit more uh, uplifting, perhaps at least to research than than say hunger strikes and some of these um, the more more grim and difficult areas of nonviolence. Um, but one area that I've worked in uh, throughout. My career has been this idea of kind of creative resistance or creative activism, and that can take all different kinds of forms. From um, as you noted, from music to theater to video to photography to graffiti to murals. There's so many different ways that I see community members creating counter narratives, if you will, to often the oppressor or the state um, through uh, through these kind of creative means. And again. This does not always result into some mass change of policy, but it can be very important for mobilizing people to a cause and also in kind of communicating a story in a different way, especially a a story of of struggle that might have been, um, you know, painted in in somewhat more, more asymmetric terms. So, you know, some of the examples from the United States, I would say, are some like the protest music from the 60s and 70s that obviously came to really be be uh, important around that era. I've worked a lot with Palestinians and Palestinian refugee camps to kind of share stories that they have told through video, through podcast, through photography, um, and take those just everyday stories of their lives back to the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. and share those stories in a way to kind of tell a different story about um. About Palestine and the Palestinian territories, which I feel in the uk is maybe a bit more understood, but in the u s at the time that I was really working on this project, there was um you know really a perception around Palestine as as violent as terrorist, these kinds of things. so to try and tell these different stories was a way to help kind of change public opinion and and often uh, mobilize people to to think and even act differently around around issues like this. Some of my more recent work has been in Lebanon, working with kind of activist theater groups and seeing how they are using um, theater and sometimes music to either push back to the state or to support community members who have um, been been involved in the war, been victims of, of violence there in various ways. So I would say there's there's a lot of different ways this takes place, and I I think people are right maybe to question if this quote unquote, works, but it certainly works at solidarity building, at community building, and again, just kind of creating uh, creating spaces for narratives to emerge that are not just those defined by those in power. So do you ever struggle with, you know, wondering if there's a, you know, you shouldn't be doing that as an academic,
0: you know, that, that, <laughs> that there is a distinction between studying something and participating?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I would say some of this work that I have done is um, parallel to my academic work and has not been... Um, Always uh, intertwined with it. With that said, there are a lot of methodologies that do allow for this. So, um, participatory action research or PAR is one that sort of enables a researcher to be immersed with participants, to be engaged with them as they're doing some of these uh, kinds kinds of things, and talking to them, doing interviews and focus groups as you go to see what kind of effect it's having on people. So, um, so I do draw from that a bit, but um. And, and I would say, too, in my work in Lebanon, that was very, very interview based and more observing than, than kind of leading on these things. But some of my other work has been more in my work as a practitioner. Mm.
0: And, and so would I be right in saying you, you started out, I and mean, I may have got this wrong, but it seems to me you started out quite sceptical about nonviolence when you're you know, th- through your studying of this, thinking... It, it, it's becoming NGO dominated, it's a way of appeasing perhaps people, giving them something to protest about, keeping them happy, but not really affecting change. And you've moved to a position where you're much more positive about it. Would that be fair?
1: Um, I would say the trajectory is maybe a little bit different. I think I, I probably came in um, a little bit more uh, optimistic about it, again, just coming out of the the histories that I knew from the US and the civil rights movement, which were the closest that I kind of, that's really what, what galvanize my interest in nonviolence to begin with. But I think I was, I was quick to see that it, that it wasn't and probably couldn't work that well in some of the contexts I was starting to work in. And I wanted to try and understand why. And I guess what changed for me was seeing, again, the question that we started with a while back there was, are, are there different ways to think about what's successful or not? And when I'm on the outside of things like this, contexts or conflicts like this, I, I usually get much more discouraged when I'm here in London or or, or in, in Washington DC than when I'm on the ground, whether it's in Iraq or Palestine or the Congo. Because in, in places there, you you again you see these everyday things that people are doing. You you do see the impact that it makes. Again, it's like I said, there's very small level local changes that seem you know, not even worth a mention, say like a news report or something like that, but it makes a difference to a village if they are able to regain land that was taken by the state or if they're able to hold off uh, from a set of homes being demolished if they're able to, to avoid that through action that they've taken. So you do see some of these things that matter to people in very small scale ways that I just hadn't even really thought about until I was on the ground in those communities and witnessing it and looking forward i mean how do you see
0: well i guess two futures the future of your research where are you taking that next and, and and also just the future of nonviolence i mean do you think you know that there will be increasing pressure on people to use nonviolence rather than violent resistance and and what would that mean
1: i think the future of nonviolence it's a it's a tactic that i don't think is ever going to go away because again it's the mo- main way that most people have available to them to Act to resist. Uh, again, mo- most people, no matter even if they wanted to, are not going to have access to to take up arms. And as as long as there is oppression and whatnot in the world, people are going to resist it. And so I don't think uh, it's going to go away. Um, but with that said, I do think nonviolence often goes in cycles. Certainly within conflicts, it does that. We see that in in Israel Palestine, other places. Um, and even globally, when, we, when we've when we seen examples of it working, I think it tends to kind of come back to the fore. Kind of right before COVID, there were kind of protests all over the world, like Chile, Hong Kong. So, you know, I mean, it was just kind of all these different protests that were taking place. But then after there are crackdowns, when some of these movements not only don't work, but sometimes backfire, then I think nonviolence goes into a little bit of a, a lull. But it, it usually does come back in ways. And like I said, it is always occurring somewhere, like constantly, even when it's not these uh, massive movements. Yeah, for myself, I I would say my my research, as always, is going a couple different directions. Um, I'm currently on a project in Iraq that's not looking so much at nonviolent resistance, but more how communities can rebuild and start to reconstruct Iraq. Again, starting at much more of that local level and focusing there rather than at the state level. And so doing a lot of work through working with youth uh, through kind of grassroots movements there. So I'm on a project there now where we're, we're looking uh, at that. And that, that came, interestingly, out of um, a protest movement in Iraq that, again, was, was one of those right before uh, the COVID lockdowns that had um, started very nonviolently, was met by a lot of repression by the state. But many of those youth activists still want to do something. And so uh, I'm on a project with them trying to see what can kind of, we do with some of that energy now since like, the protests didn't work. And the other part of my research increasingly has been on the U.S. context where I'm a native of and uh, increasingly seeing um, the U.S., uh, rightly or wrong, there's an increasingly divided uh, community in itself and trying to see what can we do there to prevent uh, the kind of political violence that some have feared um, instance like January 6th and what are the um, kind of preemptive moves we can make uh, before, um, before things kind of get out of control in areas that seem perhaps ripe for violent uh, protest rather than nonviolent? violent so, so those are the areas I'm looking at the moment. You probably think this is a terrible idea.
0: Have you, have you ever thought of spent embedding in a, an interior ministry or a defence ministry and seeing how uh, the state apparatus, was, you know, how they react to violent and nonviolent campaigns and what the differentiation they see is?
1: I, I would I would be very keen to do something like that. I will say what I did do in the prisoners project in Palestine was um, I did interview many members of the security, the Israeli security sector. So the former head of the prison service, the former head of police intelligence, the former head of um, uh, internal security and intelligence. So people who would have been involved in uh, making the decisions of how to respond to a hunger strike or some of the other actions that were done or people who had to make a decision on how you perceive or treat certain activists as, as violent or nonviolent and this kind of thing. So, and I will say that was some of the most fascinating part of that research. Um, I received some pushback for including those voices and in interviews in the book that I published about that, but I felt it was extremely important to understand, yes, how, how the state perceived these things and what worked and what didn't. And it was, um, it was very instructive to me and I hope to others as well. Julie Norman, thanks so much for
0: talking us through your research and your thinking on nonviolence. Thank you. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you.